Woi woi, woi woi, woi woi. Then it then go on the radio again. Yo, if you wanna smoke free weed, go board yourself. You need to go plant a seed. Go board yourself, make your knowledge increase. Go board yourself, go board yourself. Hey, all right. Welcome to episode number 56 of Grow Bud Yourself. We have a great show in store for you guys today, all brought to you by Excelsior Extracts, Rocket Seeds, and Sweet Leaf Plant Nutrients. Uh, our interview is with Kevin Ahasey, the CEO of Eco Cannabis and the diversity and inclusion strategist Ivy Summer. We are also going to talk to Dr. Mitch Earlywine, and we got a great cultivation segment for you guys. Uh, we're going to talk about white flies and answer some of your grow questions as well. Uh, so please stick around. Episode 56 of Grow Bud Yourself is coming at you. Hey, you guys, I really want to thank our sponsors from Excelsior Extracts. These are great friends of the show, uh, great friends of mine for many years, incredible growers, incredible people, and they have made some incredible products as well, including their THC-infused pain rub. And you know it works because you're talking about people who are real, true cannabis medical patients that are making this. Just want to shout out Outcast and, and uh, TOH. Check them out on Instagram at Excelsior Extracts. That's E-X-C-E-L-S-I-O-R-E-X-T-R-A-C-T-S. Excelsior Extracts. DM them if you're interested in trying out that pain relief rub. Tell them Grow Bud Yourself sent you. And uh, yeah, man, thank you to uh, T and O from Excelsior for sponsoring the show and being just such great friends and supporters. All right, welcome back, and thank you to DJ Jacques and Winstrong for the tune. And how you doing, Mike? How's everything here for show number 56? I'm doing well. Yeah, doing pretty good. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited. We got another great episode here for people, and uh, yeah, action-packed. I don't think we should dilly-dally too long. Well, we could dilly-dally just a bit, because I actually have something for 56 this is episode 56. Yes. And a recent law in Colorado has doubled the possession limit. So now uh, people in Colorado can legally possess two ounces of pot, and that is 56 grams. So there you go. Nice. Excellent. All right. So 56. Boom. Perfect. All right. Well, uh, that explains uh, where we're at. This is the two ounce uh, show. <laughs> <laughs> You can legally carry this show in Colorado right now. And uh, yeah, I think we're going to talk to Dr. Mitch, uh, which we do, as mentioned, on occasion. And he's got some interesting insights for us as well. You uh, want to just jump to, to Mitch and, and hear what he has to say? Let's do that. Let's go right to Mitch. And uh, yeah, because this show is, is, is packed with info. All right, here we are with friend of the show, Dr. Mitch Early Wine, a professor of psychology up at SUNY Albany, and also the author of Understanding Marijuana, The Parent's Guide to Understanding Marijuana. Welcome to the show once again, Dr. Mitch. Always a pleasure, guys. 
It's great to have you here. We have actually a lot of stuff to get into, a lot of things that we wanted to get your take on. Um, but we wanted to start off with something, you know, uh, there's always been, uh, in my mind, a connection between exercise and cannabis. Uh, we've talked about the runner's high uh, previously on this show, but um, but you've actually uh, done some research into this or looked over this research. So could you could you let us know a little bit about the connection between uh, cannabis and exercise? So this was a confusing field, and it wasn't until some recent work in the animal literature that we found out that THC, or at least the cannabinoids, are probably what's behind the runner's high, despite all that jumping up and down about it being the endorphins. So they did some complicated stuff with blocking certain things on these uh, different rodents and showed that basically it's it's the cannabinoid system that's really involved. So we wanted to see, hey, is this going to generalize to humans? There's a whole subset of humans who use cannabis as an exercise aid, either to reward themselves at the end of exercise or to hit a little bit early to make exercise a little more pleasant. And I got to admit, uh, some folks near and dear to us may be uh, big fans of that approach to exercise. And they claim the natural anti-inflammatory things seem to help with recovery. And it just makes the time pass in a more pleasant way. We have a really big problem in the U.S. with uh, basically little kids, kids under you know, 14, 15, who aren't getting enough activity in a day, especially recently since we've been through so much uh, rough times. And so definitely do not want this to be something that we apply to kids because it looks like basically every, every little kid needs a little more exercise lately. But for adults, it looks like cannabis users exercise just as much and sometimes more than the average non-user. And I just wanted to make sure we spread the message that everybody's uh, doing a good job. And if you uh, don't have part of a regular exercise program going, now's the time to start. And by all means, that's what's going to keep us all alive and well into the decades ahead. Sounds good. Dan, what do you think? Performance enhancing drug here for uh, cannabis? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think uh, I like both uh, the... Uh, consumption of cannabis prior to exercise and then uh, as a reward for exercise. <laughs> I think, I don't think you have to choose one or the other. I think both is, is just as appropriate personally. Yeah, for sure. And there's been a lot of discussion just in the professional leagues, especially NFL, about how cannabis can help with recovery, which you which you touched on, which I think is a, is a great thing if the alternative is like an opioid. Oh, well, and I'm heartbroken that, you know, the Broncos aren't supposed to use cannabis. Like here you are in this giant state with, you know, some of the greatest cannabis in the land and you're not supposed to go anywhere near it just because you're in the NFL. Like, do they own you? I hear the Seahawks now make some of the players wear that, wear that risk, uh, that wrist monitor to make sure they're getting enough sleep every night. It's like, man, if you want to sign up for a professional sport, I guess they really own you. So I'm paying more attention to my local high school sports now and just trying to become a fan there instead of uh, supporting some of the crews who aren't necessarily letting everybody appreciate the freedoms that other Americans have. Yeah, fair enough. It, it, it's a it's a bit of a sticky one to uh, to unpack, you know, the states that have cannabis laws and the teams that are located there. But um, hopefully it, it seems as if it's trending in the direction where the testing is is less and the the penalties are not nearly as severe so maybe that's positive 
and the beloved Dr. Greenspoon used to always say, uh, we really should have cannabis along the sidelines for any sport where there's going to be a head injury because uh, a quick dose of some cannabinoid right after that can really make the difference between what's a hardcore concussion and what's just a modest uh, bump on the head, shall we say. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, well, since you mentioned a uh, quick dose versus maybe not so quick dose, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit today about edibles. And this is a topic that Dan and I have discussed on the show several times. And it's come up because some of our listeners and even some of the people that Dan and I know very well uh, cannot achieve a high from taking from uh, cannot get high from marijuana edibles. So, uh, you know, obviously, when you smoke cannabis, it's a whole different process compared to eating it. Uh, you know, there's a um, metabolic process that is involved with edibles. And so we, we wanted to maybe get your take on this. You know, why why are some people unable to get high from edibles? It's intriguing because I'm never sure if they're completely incapable or just they occasionally get uh, a situation where, depending upon the state of their own gut, they end up having a hard time. Generally, what happens is your stomach is going to turn THC into 11-hydroxy-THC, which I know is just a fancy word for another molecule that passes the blood-brain barrier more readily. So what you'll notice is the onset is markedly more delayed, but then the intensity can be higher and the duration can certainly be a lot longer with an edible. So folks who are using them for sleep aids, for example, claim it's really good to maintain uh, how you battle insomnia if you've got a problem where you're waking up too early or waking up in the middle of the night. My student, Mallory Laughlin, had a paper in JAMA, actually, that suggested that not all edibles are created equally. So if they say five milligrams on the bag, that doesn't necessarily mean they're five milligrams. Uh, and saw a lot of variation, sometimes as much as 60% uh, off in either direction for, for some of the edible products. And I think as folks are getting better at quality control, that's going to be less of an issue. We were looking at the alcohol literature, and there's a subset of folks who just don't have the enzymes in their stomach to break alcohol down. And as you age, you tend to lose some of that. So that was where we were looking at first, but it seems like there is this subset of folks who tried multiple times, multiple different kinds of edibles, some pretty alarming doses, I would say, in some cases, and just don't get the subjective effects. Now, my worry was, oh, they weren't getting a very rapid onset. You eat a brownie, you don't notice anything, so you eat two more, and then later you're just, oh, man, lying down on the dark side of the moon. And I really want to discourage folks from any of that. Starting low and going slow is always your, your best friend. But if you've done 15 milligrams of THC and not noticed anything and used multiple products and never had an experience, you may not have the GI system to make it so you get that 11-hydroxy THC that eventually ends up in your brain. And I apologize and, and certainly... Uh, don't want to begrudge you the experience. And I'm guessing that a nice vaporized dose will still do the trick. <laughs> you know, it's true. We, we, uh, Mike mentioned, we have a former colleague who could eat all the edibles in the world. Uh, recently there was an article in the Boston globe by our friend Dan Adams. Uh, and he coined the phrase 
edit blocked, edit blocked, like people who can't get high from uh, eating cannabis. And, uh, um, you know, his article posits that there's a uncommon variant of a key liver enzyme uh, that could possibly be uh, to blame for that. And I think, I guess you mentioned that with the people who couldn't uh, absorb alcohol or, or couldn't uh, process it. So, yeah, it's interesting. And, and then, uh, you know, having that colleague uh, brought me, you know, into Googling that and finding out that there is a, 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 you know, it's a small subset, but there's a subset of cannabis users that just aren't affected. And I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, that that exists and, and that, but they're, but they're perfectly fine with, uh, as you said, like vaporizing or uh, smoking, uh, maybe even tinctures. I'm not sure. I, I guess tinctures probably wouldn't work even, even though I, I you know, that goes to the blood to the bloodstream through, you know, a different pathway than the sure. stomach. So that's interesting. Maybe those, maybe tinctures would have a, have an effect. I'm not sure. That may be the way to do it is to just hold a tincture under your tongue for as long as you can and right. see uh, if you get, if you get some kind of effect that way, I'd be intrigued to learn if some folks who don't respond to uh, cannabis in the gut could still respond to cannabis in the mouth. And uh, that would be uh, a neat, a neat lesson. And anybody who has that experience should definitely email me at 420research at gmail.com because I, I would love to write that up. I think that would be a hoot. So is the sublingual uh, process different than the um, metabolic process that, that you would get with eating an edible? In theory, the mucous membranes will absorb the cannabinoids and it's relatively close to the brain, so it doesn't have to go through, uh, have all that wild li liver metabolism necessarily, although there's a, a second pass, as they call it, with liver metabolism that I guess would be wasted on the folks who don't you know, have that enzyme. And uh, as you can imagine, this is not the top priority at the federal institutes to, to find these people and figure out what's going on with them exactly, but I think uh, it wouldn't be impossible for them to still respond to a sublingual tincture or other sublingual substance, uh, even if they don't respond to, uh, say, a cookie. You know, that's really interesting. And did you um, you have some experience uh, with research into uh, placebos with edibles? Is that right? So it was wild. My lab, we've always tried to do placebo-controlled work whenever we can. It's not very easy with cannabis. Uh, Experienced users either don't expect to get very high or are very difficult to end up in the placebo group and not basically break the blind, so to speak. They know they know it's not it's not really happening. But we did have some luck about 30 minutes in after these rather aversive <laughs> placebo lollipops that had hemp oil and tasted like an ashtray, I think, um, was crossed between ashes and you just mowed your lawn or something like that. But uh, we did have a subset of folks who thought they were high for, uh, for a little stretch in there and, and did get to do some uh, subjective effects tests on them. And they claimed they were high. But again, after about uh, an hour, they noticed something was up. So. Would it take you an hour, Dan? Uh, yeah, I don't, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Not. Well, my first work in alcohol was also on placebos and actually showed that uh, 
our conditioned responses to alcohol cues are in the opposite direction of our usual alcohol responses. So it's like your body's getting ready for, oh, here comes this alcohol. And so normally your heart rate would increase, but in fact it slows and things like that. And I tried to write a grant to study that in cannabis, but as you can imagine, that got shot down. <laughs> well, it's too bad. I, I think the placebo uh, angle is really fascinating. It's an interesting uh, psychological subject. Um, and also speaking of interesting psychological uh, subjects, so uh, one of the things that that we you know really we support a great deal on this show are caregivers who are helping patients, uh, especially patients that have terminal illnesses and need the uh, need the medicine in order to you know help with the pain or nausea or even put on weight. But of course, it, caring for people in that state can have a dramatic it can carry a, a heavy weight. And so some research talks about how caregivers are using cannabis to help treat themselves while they're treating uh, patients. So my friend Brian Caskey from my old Indiana days and we overlapped at USC is now at Iowa and essentially showed first off the use of cannabis with demented patients, as weird as that sounds, is super helpful. They're less likely to get agitated, they sleep better, and their appetites are better so that at least theoretically, they, they could live longer. It's a grueling task to, to take care of those folks. And uh, you'll see the occasional YouTube video where somebody does kind of come back to life or at least gets a little more coherent and fun uh, after using cannabis, even if they're demented at their baseline state, which kind of blows my mind. Um, but you know, they deserve to get as much joy as they can. It's, it's gotta be a, a, a pretty strange life. And then he showed that in fact, uh, no one had asked before, but the caregivers, once they see that they've got the person they're taking care of is settled in and doing okay. And somebody else is around, they're, uh, eager to have a little cannabis to handle their own stress. And I gotta admit, given the nature of the task, uh, you know, to have a high half hour of watching The Simpsons before you hit the hay is not going to be particularly dangerous for any caregiver and not only consistent with harm reduction, but I think a, a great way to make sure that you can be as courteous and gentle as possible with your uh, with your patient at the end of the day. And these data on them being less combative is really impressive too. So if 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 they're really getting hostile and they don't, you know, there's no malice there. Like they don't even know what's going on. It, it does seem to help. And they, at least the ones uh, Brian interviewed, do seem to respond to edibles and to have a low steady dose doesn't seem to, you know, what are they going to have their IQ go down? Like it's, it's just, it's not, it's not the issue that uh, some of the drug warriors have, have implied. Makes sense. Yeah. That sounds like a, it sounds like it's on the right track there. Um, as always, we, we appreciate you coming on this show and setting us straight, Dr. Mitch. Um, well, I was going to ask this. I don't know. This, this is definitely outside your, uh, your uh, realm, but do you have any opinion on these UFOs that, that we're talking about here? I wanted to, I wanted to check with you. You're one of the smarter, uh, gentlemen that we speak to on the show, background in science. Uh, do you have any opinion on, on, on UFOs at all? So I was on a news diet when that first came out. So I didn't see it like the moment it broke, but it sounds like quite a few people who are regularly in the air flying around, see things that they don't identify 
pretty frequently. And I should emphasize that once you're up in the sky, there are a whole lot of visual uh, deviance, shall we say, that could look like something when it's often a trick of light or light off a cloud or, or uh, something like that. But the fact that some of these pretty credible, pretty straight, you know, uh, military guys are saying, oh, we, we see it all the time. And there's nothing to gain. It's not like they're getting some hip notoriety or endorsement deal or anything about that. So I, I got I got to admit, I, I have to keep an open mind. I relish the thought that there are you know, more living beings in the universe than than uh, the animals on Earth. But when you start thinking about how vast the universe is and how long it's been around, it would seem like there are bound to be places where life could also have appeared. But the idea that then they would get all the way here and watch us and not, you know, eat us or, you know, turn us into an ant farm or something seems seems a little unlikely. Uh, I hate to sound paranoid or, or too skeptical, but it, it's uh, it's not all adding up for me. It's It just doesn't quite click, if that makes any sense. Oh yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I'm with you on that as well. I, I have uh, not been convinced in any way, shape, or form yet of any. But you have to appreciate the the release of of some of these, you know, declassifying uh, sure. materials so we could all oh, yeah. look at it, right? Oh, absolutely. I think it should all be out there, and you know, the public can handle it at this point. I think we can handle pretty much anything. So, uh, yeah, I, I just I like the idea that they can travel the vast distances of time and space and all of this, and then suddenly uh, not make themselves invisible uh, to us. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It just seems, it seems silly, but <laughs> I know, who knows? We could, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I got it. Even on a hallucinogen, I, I have never thought, oh, wow, there must be beings from outer space right around here. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, sorry to take us off course there for a minute, but um, as always, we appreciate you taking the time. Uh, most of our listeners know uh, how to reach you, but for those who may not, uh, why don't you tell them how they can get a hold of you and where they could see some of your stuff? So I, I do have a website at, at University of Albany, but uh, they did not endorse this podcast. And then uh, if you want to email me, I'm at 420research at gmail.com. That's the numbers 420research at gmail.com. And uh, my books are, you know, go to your local bookstore and, and request them, but uh, they're available online as well. And then if you do get on Google Scholar and want to see what the lab is up to, just plug my name in and, and search away. We're doing some fun stuff with uh, both cannabis, some harm reduction stuff, protective behaviors, and uh, some new stuff in the lab on psychedelics. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Dr. Mitch. And uh, we will be back with more Grow Bud Yourself after this. All right. Gosh, always great to have uh, Dr. Mitch on the show to elucidate and illuminate us. <laughs> I've been listening to a lot of Walt Frazier here <laughs> on the Knicks games there. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, well, hey, yeah. they made was, the playoffs. Yeah, better than the last, <laughs> like, 10 years. So. Yeah, they made the playoffs and Golden State didn't, so that's interesting. It's a new new day in the NBA. Indeed, indeed. But we have a great interview for you guys. Uh, we have 
Kevin Ahasey uh, of Eco Cannabis, as well as Ivy Summer, who is a diversity and inclusion strategist. Uh, and we are going to talk to them about uh, social equity and quality cannabis and, you know, with a heart and a soul and a conscience. So a uh, very interesting interview coming up. And I think, uh, you know, without further ado, uh, why don't we take a break and come back with Kevin and Ivy? Hey, you guys, I want to tell you guys about a sponsor of ours, Rocket Seeds. Uh, check them out at rocketseeds.com. They have a ton, I mean, over 500 different varieties of cannabis strains available. Uh, high quality seeds, great genetics. Uh, they ship worldwide, which is very important. Uh, reliable support. And they also ship for a variety of different seed banks. They've got feminized seeds, autoflowering seeds, regular seeds, uh, CBD seeds. A lot of people are looking for that. So check them out at rocketseeds.com or on Instagram, rocket underscore seeds. They are awesome and we are really happy to have them on as a sponsor. So check them out, blast off, and get your seeds from rocketseeds.com. All right, welcome back to Grow Bud Yourself, and we have uh, special guests for you guys today. Uh, we have Kevin Ahasey. He is the CEO of Eco Cannabis in the Bay Area, as well as diversity and inclusion strategist, Ivy Summer. Welcome, Kevin and Ivy, to the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, why don't we start by uh, explaining a little bit about what uh, eco cannabis is and what you guys do business wise and, and all of that. Sure. Uh, eco cannabis is a California vertically integrated cannabis company. Uh, we're based out of Oakland, California. And, uh, I would say that we, uh, we're probably, uh, most well known for, um, our involvement in Oakland social equity program and, uh, hiring 50% formerly incarcerated, um, at our dispensary in downtown Oakland. Yeah. Now tell me a little bit about that. That's in, uh, in conjunction with ConConnect? That's one of the resources that we use to identify formerly incarcerated applicants. And, uh, and then, of course, we put, put them through a screening process and, um, and then bring them on board. And ideally, you know, we try and get these numbers uh, over 50%, 60 70% if possible. Um, this is for retail hires. So there is, you know, a, a fair amount of turnover. Um, but we have consistently maintained uh, above 50% for the last two and a half years uh, since we've been open. Um, and this was a commitment, a commitment we made to the city of Oakland when applying for our license. It was part of uh, Oakland social equity program, um, which is, uh, gives opportunities to black and brown uh, folks who have been disenfranchised by the war on drugs. Um, <clears throat> at the time of legalization, there was a councilwoman by the name of Desley Brooks, uh, and she saw that there was money to be made in the cannabis space and that um, during the uh, Prop 64 and 215 uh, days in California, uh, a lot of uh, older white men uh, were in the industry and not enough people of color. And so she wanted to make sure that uh, that she put statutes into place that would mandate uh, people of color's inclusion in, in the cannabis space, uh, in, in the legal cannabis space. 
Interesting. And you guys also source uh, 50% of your products uh, from social equity brands and distributors. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, it's um, it's it's one thing to support uh, social equity programs by giving them free rent, which is what we've done and uh, and also mentoring. But um, what 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 I did and, and we kind of went above and beyond in this is uh, is that the, the last mile. So let's say you're a, a big brand, um, Papa and Barkley or, or you know, Willie's Reserve. Um, if you want to uh, sell your product into our dispensary, then um, you can take that that product 90% uh, of the way to our dispensary. But the, the last mile, we call it, is going to belong to a social equity business. Um, and what that allows is for the social equity business to get involved in the cannabis space, in the supply chain, understanding how uh, metric works. That's our, our state reporting um, program. And, uh, and also just introduces them to a lot of contacts that they wouldn't normally get um, because there's a large demand of vendors who want to be in our, in our dispensary. And so I thought it was a good way of, of, getting these businesses, uh, you know, directly involved in, in the process. And, uh, and so far so good, you know, we've, we've definitely uh, had to educate them on, on how to do it. Um, and, uh, we've had to educate our, our, uh, vendors on why, why we're doing this and, and why maybe they're going to give up a portion of their distribution, uh, dollars to this social equity business and, and why it means a lot. And so we've had great reception from, uh, from all of our vendors. Uh, we haven't had any pushback and, uh, and it's helped the social equity distribution businesses grow, which is great to see. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting because we we're in New York city, myself and Mike and, uh, New York recently just passed, uh, a law that actually uh, does, you know, at least on paper, have uh, a, you know social equity built in, uh, as well as diversity. And I wanted to ask Ivy, um, what can we learn from you know Oakland and 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 what's gone down out there uh, with the you know Oakland social equity program, and and how can real systemic change come about? Uh, from the program and, and, and how can New York benefit from either mistakes or uh, successes that, that occurred out West? Well, I would definitely say uh, take advantage of the cannabis industry feeling like a small industry as it's emerging and to connect with the people who have experienced what it's like in the social equity program of a given city. So I will say that Kevin can speak a lot to the experience of that, having, you know, incubated more than a few businesses himself with Oakland's social equity program. I am currently developing, among other diversity and inclusion experts, the diversity and inclusion, equity and belonging standards for the cannabis industry so that we can publish that standard on the National Association of Cannabis Businesses website to make available for everyone in the industry. Um, you'll find on that website, NACB's website, the social equity standards, which are currently published, and those were created in conjunction with legislation 
creators, all right, and government officials who had a piece to share on how legislation is passed and what it's like to speak about this topic at the table in terms of uh, government and regulation. So there is a resource out there already that is uh, purposefully accessible to people in the industry, including those like New York, who are looking to implement these kinds of programs in their city. But I will refer to, to Kevin when it comes to sharing a personal experience. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, Kevin, uh, do you have maybe any advice for us out here uh, based on uh, lessons learned out, I out there? I okay. do have a lot of advice. I have a lot of lessons learned. Yeah. Um, you know, as, as, as good of intentions as Oakland and Desley Brooks had, um, when you're first out of the gates, there's just going to be some stumbles, um, you know, and so there's been a lot that, uh, that I, that I certainly have learned from and, and, you know, hopefully the city of Oakland has, and, and then, you know, places like New York can, can, uh, skip those, uh, those issues. Um, but, you know, I think the most important thing that I've seen is you, you can't just throw money at the problem. You can't even throw opportunity at the problem. You have to throw mentorship at the problem um, and, and or education, how, whatever you want to call it. But um, there has to be a huge education component. It's it's getting better. Um, but you know, right out of the gates, we were giving loans out to people who have never gotten a loan before, who have, uh, you know, never run a business before. Um, and, um, and it's, I, I, I don't know what the, the statistics are of, you know, how many loans went out and how, how many of those businesses are, have, have been successful or not. But, um, but regardless of, of, Cannabis, no cannabis, social equity, no social equity. It's very difficult starting uh, a small business, and there's there's a very low success ratio, right? There's, you know, after five years, seventy percent of small businesses fail. So, um, so my thought is that if if we're going to do this, then let's do it right, and let's let's pair uh, social equity businesses up with people who have been successful in business already. And so that they can educate them on how to set up their business, how to run their business effectively, profitably, um, and pay these loans back and, you know, be, be in this for the long term, as opposed to some, you know, PR gimmick out there of just, you know, saying, hey, you know, we gave $10 million to social equity. Well, okay, great. But what did that $10 million do? How many companies came out of that? Um so, you know, that, that, that's what I would recommend. And, you know, as of now, it's not, it's not something that the city of Oakland is doing. We're giving free rent. Uh, they give uh, loans out. These loans are personally guaranteed by these, these social equity businesses, um, um, which is a problem. Some of them don't know that they're personally guaranteed. So, so you know, that, that's an issue as well. Um, <clears throat> but uh, but I, you know, I had incubated eight social equity businesses, uh, giving them 1,000 square feet of free rent for three years and uh, security as well. <clears throat> and uh, that those three years have come and gone. And I kept two of the businesses in um, that I that I had incubated. Um, and I should clarify when, when I mean incubate, I, I don't own any part of these companies. Right. It's just I'm just giving them free rent and that's it. And there's also no obligation to provide any coaching or mentoring or anything like that. It's strictly free rent and, um, and security. And so that's what I went into. That was my mindset when I went into this is, okay, well, this, the, the, 
This, these are the rules and this is what we're going to do. And I quickly found out it wasn't enough. <clears throat> and so we started find, trying to find ways that we could contribute more. And that's when um, I decided to take on two of these companies that I felt um, needed the help and were willing to take on the help. Um, and uh, I mentor them to this day. Uh, I just you know had a conference call with, with one of the, the companies and just helping them move along in the process um, of forming a company the right way. Um, <clears throat> and, um, you know, it's not that difficult. I think everyone should do it. Uh, I think that it, it takes a little bit more time, but it's so much more effective. And so um, <clears throat> it's just, you know, I, I know how hard this is. And I came into this, this, this business with a 15 year real estate background, you know, doing commercial real estate, understanding how to work, work cities and, and get permits through and, and, you know, do all of that. And, and I still think this is the one, one of the most difficult things I've ever done without my history. I, I, I couldn't imagine what this would be like, just, just starting from, from zero. Um, and so I, I can't, I can't stress it enough. Obviously I've talked on it for about five minutes. I'm extremely passionate about it because I think that there, there, there's a lot of people that are, that are missing, missing what, what, what it's going to take to, to make social equity businesses, um, you know, viable. And, uh, and it just takes more commitment. You know, you, you can't go from zero to 60 immediately. I think it's a stepping stone. And so I, I would look at the mentorship as a true incubator or stepping stone to where, you know, let's, let's get these social equity businesses educated on what it's like to run a business, what it takes to run a business. And then let's give the loans and fund them and, and you know, and really support their growth. But there needs to be a foundation provided first. So what I gather is that, um, you know, even if they have a great product or if they have a, a, a strong understanding of, of cannabis and, and how to, uh, you know, create it or produce a great product, um, they still need to be able to navigate through uh, the banking and the taxes and the insurance and and especially with cannabis, I would imagine the regulations, as you mentioned, like permitting and and all of that. And that's where the mentors come in. But even not not so specific to cannabis, we have to start treating this as we are supporting new business owners. Forget cannabis. It doesn't matter. Right. And so and we're so fixated on the cannabis that we forget that you have to know how to run a business first. Right. And, and cannabis isn't just this lottery that you've won. And as soon as you, you know, put a shingle on your door, you're ready to go. It's a lot more work than that. Yeah. And I noticed that you also have, um, you know, other brands involved like uh, Wham, which we've had Valerie on the show in the past and is, is a, a organization that we wholeheartedly um, support and is also all about, you know, sun and soil grown cannabis, uh, you know, lightly fed uh, very eco friendly, and I'm assuming you know the eco and eco cannabis has to do with uh, with you know environmental concerns as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, we all of our packaging is biodegradable. Uh, we do grow indoor. Um, that there's just a high demand, especially in Oakland, for uh, high quality indoor. Uh, we use all LED lights. We have 550 LED lights. And uh, as we get our power upgrades, we're working on a, a solar plant as well, right? You know, unfortunately, solar just can't support the amount of power that's needed to uh, to grow cannabis um, indoors. But uh, we're getting there. You know, hopefully Tesla will come out with a giga battery soon that can that can handle this. And uh, you know, uh, we've got the space. We have five acres to, to put up these solar panels, but technology needs to catch up a little bit uh, for us to get there. Awesome. Um, Mike, do you have any uh, 
Oh uh, yeah, actually, I got a couple things. Um, well, first of all, for Kevin, your your website mentions a commitment to uh, the normalization of consuming cannabis. I, I wanted to know what that uh, meant to you and how you go about doing it. Uh, yeah, um, you know, I, I I guess treating it like it's you know not the the bad drug that Nancy Reagan had led us all to believe. Um, you know, I think for me personally, it's, it's, you know, representing my company with pride, um, and what it stands for, whether that's, you know, in my neighborhood at my kids soccer games or, or swim meets, it's not something that I shy away from, uh, in my social media, you know, I, I, you know, I purposely go out and, you know, I'll put a, a nice picture of a, of a clean, bong with uh with glass uh you know with uh with ice in it you know ready to go on a friday afternoon to show you know that's that's what i do and uh you know i'll put pictures up me smoking joints whatever it takes i think there's a lot of people in the cannabis space that that still don't do that especially executives and um you know that's that's you know maybe i'll take some hits you know for it from certain people that you know are, are maybe a little bit slower to adopt uh to cannabis but that's that's what we have to do. That's part of, of normalizing this thing. Yeah. I was also wondering, and maybe uh, Ivy, you could take this one, um, but really open to whoever wants to comment on it. Um, New Mexico recently passed a legalization bill, but they didn't outline a social equity plan in the bill. And the governor said that the plan was to legalize first and then pass a separate uh, social equity bill. And then the governor of New Mexico actually gave that advice to Connecticut's governor uh, as a plan to legalize first, social equity second. I just was wondering uh, what you guys thought of that strategy. I'll, do, I'll refer to Kevin because I see him saying, mm-mm. <laughs> okay, all right. I, I, let me look at it from their point of view. Um, you know, I, 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 they're looking at, states who have done it and haven't got it right. And so what they may be thinking is let's get the tax revenue in first and then let's figure out the social equity piece. Um, and, and, and let's take our time doing it and, and probably do it the right way. Right. They, I, I, let's assume that they, they, they want to do it the right way. The, the issue is, especially from an operator is that there's so many regulations and changes that are coming at you packaging regulations are always changing you know um just uh, labeling regulations are always changing just everything seems to always be changing and so trying to stick a social equity component into a state after things are already operating and going um you know it's going to be awfully easy for them to kind of put that to the side is what i think um you know and so I would rather see them take their lumps like California is, you know, listen to people who, who have already done it. Right. And, but, but slow down because it's, there's a reason that Desley Brooks did what she did and said, hold we're not going to get any of the money to anybody until we figure out this social equity piece. And once we got that figured out, then we're going to distribute. Right. If you don't do that, then corruption is just going to set in and, and it's never, you're never going to have a social equity program. So. Um, I, my, my advice is, is, you know, pump the brakes on, on the cash and, and do a little bit more, uh, more due diligence on, um, on people who have gone through social equity before and have good advice and, and then, and, and don't be lazy, put a plan together. Yeah. That's, I think that's a cop out. It's the same with, um, considering legalization on the federal level. 
which may be proposed, but if we aren't going to do it the right way, then we're just setting ourselves up to go forward and making it harder and harder to lay a foundation that is going to be impactful in the way we intend, right? Not have unintended consequences if we move forward. And it's the same thing when it comes to diversity, inclusion, and equity, you know, laying that foundation, especially in terms of these social equity programs is really, really important. And the further you go without it, the harder it's going to be later to understand how to implement it. Um, So I I agree with what Kevin's saying for those reasons. And I want to reiterate, you know, for these social equity programs that are different across states, across cities, right? There's no golden standard out there yet. And that's what we're working towards. But if you go on and say, we'll just figure it out later, it is absolutely more likely to be put on the back burner. And and I would say that these governors should spend more time figuring out a plan for the state as a whole. I think one of the issues with California is that they they left it up to the localities to figure out their own social equity programs. And so it's extremely confusing, especially in its perception to the public, because nobody really understands what social equity is. And so... They really, it needs to be cleaned up and and the way to do it is just to mandate it across the board at a state level that this is what you're going to need to do because Oakland's social equity requirements are much different than San Francisco's social equity requirements than San Jose, than, than Los Angeles. And it's the buzzword. Everybody wants to participate in social equity and that's great, right? But, um, let's, again, you got to do it the right way and, and, uh, and the governor, has the ability to, to do this. And, you know, he's the one who's making the rules on this. And, uh, and so leaving it up to the localities was, again, I think something that just was, it, it pushed things through when, when legalization happened um, and, uh, and got things up and running. And it was cities like Oakland that had to step in and say, okay, we've got the power now then, you know, and we're not going to let anybody operate without this social equity component. Um, and so I think, you know, if anything, these governors in New Mexico and Connecticut should 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 be thinking of a statewide plan that makes sense. Um, don't 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 kick the can down the road. Right now, um, I want to learn a little bit more about um, this program to hire formerly incarcerated folks, because I think that, uh, you know, takes the equity thing to a whole different level where you're actually taking people uh, directly, you know, affected obviously by the war on drugs and uh you know that were incarcerated and i guess explain how that how that works uh for you and and um you know how it might be uh something that you know we should consider here in new york and in other states as uh as legalization continues to spread yeah yeah i look everybody who's been in the cannabis space for the last 30 years is a criminal you know, and there's, you know, and so there's a lot of criminals out there. Uh, a lot of people have been in the space for a long time. And so, you know, it, it's, yeah, it, it takes a couple of extra steps what we do, but it's not that hard. It's we're not, we're not, you know, reinventing the wheel for the most part. We just, you know, rather than going into Indeed, we go to different organizations that support the reentry of, of those formerly incarcerated. That's really the only difference. From there on, you know, we're running through a, a, a standard uh, interview process, screening process. You know, um, we hire on good people. We don't hire on bad people. 
And, uh, you know, and if you're, you, you say you're good and you turn out bad, we're going to fire you, you know, and that, you know, but that it's, it's, you know, I don't see formerly incarcerated, not formerly incarcerated. When I go to the dispensary, I don't know who, who is and who isn't. I don't care. Right. We've got a great culture. We've got over, you know, we have 850, you know, 4.9 Google reviews. Uh, so, you know, customer service is extremely important to us. And, uh, it just, it's, it's not that big a deal. It doesn't matter. Uh, the only thing that matters is that we don't ask them to check a box on an application of whether they've been formally incarcerated or not. And, you know, automatically veto them because of that. And that's it. And so it's just not really that hard for anybody else to do. Um, it, it, sure. It was scary at first. People, you know, oh gosh, you're going to get robbed by no. I mean, we've gotten robbed by other people but not by our employees. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's, uh, again, it's just, it's, it's nothing to be afraid of. It's something everybody should do. Um, you know, it's, it's right for the, for the business. And there's the gratitude that you get from these formerly incarcerated people, I will say is, is different. Um, you know, they're, they're so thankful to have an opportunity after being shut out, um, of so many retail jobs that, you know, are just, you know, minimum wage jobs. And once you check that box, you've, you know, you've got that, that mark on you. And, um, and so it is, it is kind of nice seeing some people spread their wings and open up, especially, you know, maybe if they're a little bit more uh, disenchanted and shy uh, because of what they've gone through in the past. And then, you know, they kind of find a home in eco. So it's nice to see. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. So um how can people find out more about eco cannabis and uh, what you guys are doing uh, just, I guess, through social media or internet? Um, you can uh, visit our website, which is www.highigh-eco.com. And that will tell you a lot about our company. Um, we also have, uh, Instagram, um, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. I try and put a lot of stories and, uh, and different posts up there on our cultivation as well as our retail. And so that's, uh, I think just my name, Kevin Hasey at LinkedIn. Uh, if you're in the area, come visit us. We're in West Oakland, uh, at 2435 Telegraph Avenue. <laughs> iconic iconic and yeah. ivy um as far as uh people want, that want to know a little bit more about uh your work as a diversity and inclusion strategist yeah you can also find me on linkedin ivy sumber she her all right perfect all right well thank you uh kevin and ivy uh, for being on the show, telling us uh, a bit about what you guys do. Uh, and we will be back after these messages with more Grow Bud Yourself. Hey guys, I want to tell you about Sweet Leaf Plant Nutrients. They have an incredible line of organic fertilizers, uh, brand new legacy line as well, which is organic and some synthetics. A lot of really incredible tools for the modern gardener. So check them out at sweetleaf.com, S-U-I-T-E-L-E-A-F. Uh, the code DANKO15 gets you 15% off of everything that you can get at Sweetleaf, which also includes uh, complete indoor hydroponic grow tent kits, uh, a bunch of different apparel and merch, and their signature line of amazing nutrients. If you join our Patreon, uh, you can get even more codes 
for 20 or even 25% off of Sweet Leaf Newts and other products. I want to thank them for being a sponsor. And as always, tell them that Grow Bud Yourself sent you. All right, welcome back. And uh, we are now in the cultivation segment. So, uh, yeah, how you doing, Mike? I'm good. That was a fun interview. I'm glad we got those perspectives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Interesting stuff. Now um, it's time and- for the Danko perspective. Because <laughs> each week, Dan likes to take on a grow topic that will help you become a better grower. So what do you want to talk about this week? Yes. So this week, I want to talk about white flies. Uh, and white flies are a particular pest infestation that you can get. Uh, very annoying and also... Uh, damaging, as opposed to something like fungus gnats, where they are very annoying, but don't quite do nearly as much damage as white flies. Both uh, flying insects, but uh, white flies uh, definitely do more, uh, wreak more harm upon your plants. Basically, they resemble tiny little moths. Uh, they're white, as you would imagine. Uh, they typically feed on the underside of plant leaves, and they drain those leaves of moisture uh, they slow the growth of the plants a lot just by eating those leaves and, and, and pulling that moisture out. Uh, and they will cause their telltale slimy marks that you'll see on the tops of the leaves. Um, so typically you won't see the white flies on the tops of the leaves, but you will see the marks that they leave uh, from the underside will look like kind of slimy marks on the top of the leaf. Um, they also enjoy moist conditions. So uh, when you overwater or if you have like really high humidity, that will definitely bring about more uh, white flies than usual. They certainly like warmer uh, conditions as well, and they can reproduce very quickly. Like I said, high humidity and overwatering can cause uh, outbreaks of them or exacerbate an existing infestation. So there's different insecticidal soaps that you can use uh, that if you apply them regularly and properly, properly, uh, they can definitely uh, reduce the damage done by uh, white flies. You should reapply that. Uh, I don't recommend neem oil anymore. I used to, uh, but times have changed, and I've started to not recommend it. I think it's just it stays around and it's too damaging. And there are things like Einstein oil, um, but I would go with an insecticidal soap rather than an oil. Uh, personally, if you're going to use some type of a spray, um, make sure you get the undersides of the leaves and the surface of the soil because that's where they lay their eggs. Uh, you also want to remove any uh, dead or damaged leaves because uh, those can harbor flies and the larvae as well. And these are flies that drop, you know, they can have hundreds of uh, offspring very quickly. Um, another effective mes- method for dealing with white flies is to introduce predator insects. I really like using predator insects. Uh, you can use green lacewing, lacewing larvae. Uh, ladybugs are also very, very effective. Um, these are bugs that you order through the mail. Uh, you can also purchase them at some nurseries. Um, you have to have multiple timed applications of them, so you don't just release them once. Uh, so it's actually better to get a package of them, release some, and then in a week or two, release a few more and keep doing that because they'll take care of multiple generations um, and that'll really control those populations. Uh, Companion plants can help too. Um, Marigolds and nasturtiums uh, both help repel white flies. Uh, 
permethrin dust uh, is actually pretty effective as well and safe uh, for edible plants. So P-R-E-M-E-T-H-R-I-N, permethrin, that type of dust. Uh, It can be used through early flowering. I wouldn't use it later in flowering personally, um, but uh, it is a way to defer and avoid infestations early on. Uh, the, really, the best way to avoid that, this type of problem is to keep the growing area clean, uh, remain vigilant, uh, check your plants constantly, use yellow sticky traps as well. The white flies will get caught up on those. And again, uh, integrated pest management is more than just one thing. So if you're going to use the insecticidal soaps, you do that. Uh, the yellow sticky traps are also very effective and the uh, predator insects as well. So uh, if you have signs of white flies or if you see them around, uh, definitely don't dilly-dally. Deal with it immediately and uh, use a integrated system of pest management. So multiple different, uh, different ways of attack. So there you go. Uh, that's some information on white flies and also integrated pest management. And uh, now... It is time to answer some questions from our listeners. And if you have a question, as always, you can get in touch with us. Uh, The email is info at growbudyourself.com. What do you say we hop right in here? Absolutely, let's do it. All right, let's start things off with Christopher. And Christopher writes, greetings, Danny. With the recent legalization in New York, I have recently renewed interest in partaking. I'm very health conscious, and I would prefer to grow my own as organically as possible. I'm reading your book, Cannabis, A Beginner's Guide to Growing Marijuana. Thank you for the great information. I also have discovered your podcast, and I've been listening voraciously to many episodes. The specific question I have for you is about growing different types of plants in the same tent. I would like to grow a sativa-dominant strain for use during daytime activities, alongside an indica-dominant strain for relaxation at night. Is this possible? Thank you for the education. So, yeah, what would you say to Christopher? Yes. uh, The quick answer to your question is that, yes, it is possible to grow different strains in the same tent. Uh, You're just going to have to make some adjustments. So uh, typically, obviously, if you're going to grow an indica, it's going to stay short and stocky. If you're going to grow a sativa, it's going to stretch out a bit. So uh, it's also going to the sativa is going to probably have a longer flowering time. So these are different things you have to adjust for in your tent. Um, if the sativa is stretching and getting too tall, uh, you want to raise the indica plant, uh, or, you know, you could lower the sativa plant if it's, if they're both up high, um, or, you know, raise, uh, raise the indica and lower the sativa or basically, uh, use the light as well. I mean, the light is fixed, so the plants themselves are the ones that are going to have to move if you do need to make that type of adjustment. But you do want a fairly level canopy, so you don't want uh, what you don't want is the indica plant being all the way on the floor, uh, and like two feet tall, with the light, you know, five or six feet up above that, um, and the stretchy sativa plant stretching all the way up to that light, because the sativa will probably do fine, but the indica will just not get enough light. Um, so raise the indica plant if necessary and um, just adjust the schedule as well. And you may have to adjust feeding because typically uh, indicas are more heavy feeders than sativas. So um, if you have that situation, you may need to mix different batches of nutrient solution for the different plants. Um, but it can be done and it's not as hard as it sounds. Uh, you just, again, have to adjust for the different ways that they grow and the different 
uh, requirements that those plants have. All right, sounds good. Uh, we hope that helps you out, Christopher. Uh, let's move on to Dion, and Dion writes, uh, Greetings from Cape Town, South Africa. I love the podcast. The cultivation sections are amazing. I especially enjoy the rare info and insight on growing sativas and growing organically. Uh, the perspectives provided on the show are comprehensive and inspiring. I'd love to hear if you have any ideas about using permaculture guilds or other forms of companion planting that see other plants besides beneficial fungi provide cannabis with pest repellent, beneficial insect attractant, or other beneficial qualities. It's a topic that is scarcely covered in permaculture literature. Also, can citronella plants help keep bugs away? What would you say to Dion? Yes, uh, thanks Dion, and uh, cheers to you in Cape Town, South Africa. Um, yeah, well, permaculture, first off, uh, is a great way to grow uh, cannabis, particularly outdoors. Uh, what it means simply is that you're improving the quality of your soil each year uh, using compost, beneficial bacteria, organic additives, um, increasing the microbial activity in your soil, um, loosening clay soils, firming up the sandy ones, and basically just uh, not having to introduce new inputs, you know, so that you're not using any kind of chemical fertilizers, you're not using uh, chemical pesticides or anything like that. Um, and you're just improving the soil year after year. Um, as for companion plants, um, I did mention earlier about the marigolds. Those work well against uh, white flies. Uh, peppermint is a great plant to deter uh, aphids. Uh, dill is a good one, discourages spider mites. Um, and there's beneficial insects uh, besides just the fungi. There's uh, ladybugs, predator mites, praying mantises, all uh, that can be part of a permaculture approach to farming. Um, as for citronella plants, I mean, they're a type of geranium and they, they repel mosquitoes. Um, so that's good. Uh, uh, but mosquitoes aren't really a, a bug that attacks cannabis plants. That doesn't, it's not a plant eating eater uh, in, at all. So, uh, so, you know, citronella is good, uh, because it repels mosquitoes, but it's not, uh, really a companion plant for cannabis. It's really a companion plant for us. Um, so if you do have mosquitoes biting you, uh, citronella is not bad to have around, but it's not going to really help out your, your, your pot plants. All right. Makes sense. Uh, hope that helps you out there, Dion. Uh, let's jump over to Vincent, who writes, Hey, Danny, my problem is not knowing when I am two weeks away from harvest time so that I could quit nutrients and flush with plain water. I have no reference to know how long it will take to go from clear trichomes to milky white trichomes, or how long it takes to go from white pistils to 25% red pistils. For example, they say that for White Widow, the flowering period is 8 to 10 weeks, but is that from 12 hours on, 12 hours off, or from when the actual flower appears? What do you say to Vincent? Okay. Uh, well, the flowering period begins from the moment you switch the light cycle to 12 hours on and 12 hours off. So even though you don't see flowers, that's the first, you know, that's the first day of flowering is the day you set that cycle uh, to 12 on, 12 off. Um, for your white widow, you want to begin the two-week flushing period uh, somewhere around six to eight weeks based on the listing uh, being ready to harvest at eight to ten weeks. Uh, but you really, this is some, one of those situations where you really got to figure out uh, when your plant is truly going to be finished and sort of work your way backwards uh, for about two weeks before when you start the flush. 
Um, now, even if you err on the side of caution and start the flushing process uh, a week too early, let's say you do it three weeks instead of two, uh, it's not the end of the world. You're just going to have a, a longer flushing time. Uh, you might see some fall colors and that sort of thing, um, but you'll still end up with a clean burning product, and I don't think your yield will be heavily affected. Um, as far as when cannabis flowers are ripe, it's when the trichomes are uh, changing from mostly clear to mostly cloudy uh, with, you know, some amber ones. So they switch from clear to cloudy when the majority of them are cloudy and not clear and not yet amber. Uh, that's when you're ready. You really don't need to worry about the hairs or the pistils. Uh, that's not a very reliable way to determine when to harvest. So um, that's, you know, when to harvest and when to flush. All right. Harvesting information there. Uh, thank you, Vincent. Let's go to Joshua, who writes, Hey, guys, uh, sprouting seeds has been easy for me, and transferring it to soil has been fine, too. My problem is they all grow straight up six inches or more, and then the weight of them makes them fall over. I have a plant light and run it accordingly, so what is the issue? Am I not planting the seeds deep enough? Uh, what say you, Danko? Uh, yeah, so initially, from the think with the subject that you're describing, uh, my first diagnosis is going to be that your light is probably too too far away from your plants. Uh, a lot. This is an issue a lot of times with beginners is that uh, they put up a light and they put a plant under it and they don't realize that plant has to be pretty close to that light depending on what what type of light it is uh you know the stronger the light obviously the further away the plant can be or should be really because of the heat coming off of there as well but uh what uh what you want to do is have that light in, in in or have the plant at the right spot so uh you know with fluorescence that could be two inches away uh with 400 watt HID lighting that could be a foot to, you know, 16 inches or so, uh, with thousand watt lights that could be two feet. Uh, so you, you know, it depends on your lighting system. Uh, but, uh, if your light is too far away, what happens is your seedlings are going to stretch and then fall over, which is what it sounds like is happening to you. Uh, so either lower your light, uh, or raise your plants and you should see that problem disappear. If your seedlings are still alive, uh, try removing your plant from that container, replanting it with much of your stem buried in a bit more soil, uh, wet the soil, and then replant in a deeper container. So flip the container over, uh, protecting the stem with your fingers, uh, gently remove the plant uh, and the root ball, and then replant in a deeper container, uh, and then bury that stem uh, a, a little bit higher so that it's not uh, bending over. Uh, and then if you use a little bit of airflow for a fan, that'll help build up your stems and make them stronger, uh, and it'll keep them from falling over and they'll be able to carry the weight of the plant. So, uh, I really think that your plants are stretching from lack of light and they need to be closer to their light source. All right. There you go, Joshua. Hope that helps. Uh, we got time for one more here. So let's go to Waterbug, who writes, hi, Dan. So, how important is aeration in a hydroponic reservoir? I've always thought that overkill was okay. I have several air pumps pushing through air stones placed in several spots in my reservoir. I let the nutrient solution pouring back into the reservoir agitated as well. It seems to always be moving and full of bubbles, but my buddy keeps just one cheap aquarium pump going in his res, and his plants seem fine. He thinks I'm crazy to run all that electric just to move my water around, What's your take? 
Yes. Okay, this is a good one because I am big on aeration in hydroponic reservoirs. I don't think you can really overdo it. So uh, I think you're right to move and aerate and agitate your nutrient solution the way you do. Uh, it's far, far more likely to be success um, because it's properly oxygenated. And the electricity that you spend on uh, air pumps is very minimal uh, compared with the benefit you get from all those tiny bubbles of oxygen in your water. Uh, so really the more aeration, the better. There's, it's hard to overdo it, as I mentioned. So, uh, and that's the theory behind aeroponics also. That's when your roots just dangle in a mist of nutrient solution. Um, so with that available oxygen and proper food levels, uh, as long as the temperature of that water and the, the pH and the parts per million are all dialed in, uh, you can have explosive growth rates with your roots uh, and really healthy and strong plants. Um, so your buddy might eventually start dealing with root rot or some type of a fungus uh, by not providing as much air in his uh, nutrient solution liquid as you have in your reservoir. So. Uh, like I said, it's hard to overdo it. It's not very pricey to uh, pump air uh, electrically into your reservoir. And uh, all that oxygenation and agitation is very good for your nutrient solution in your plants. So uh, keep it up and, you know, let that oxygen flow through your water. There you go, water bug. Tell your buddy, uh, listen to episode 56. Danko's got some news for him. <laughs> Agitation is all right. So, that, yeah, that does it for uh, our listener Q&A. Thanks to everybody who wrote in. Uh, if you have a question that you would like Dan to answer on the show, just write us. You can get us at info at growbudyourself.com. Uh, we're going to take a little break, then come back and wrap this up. Let's do it. All right, welcome back. And this is the wrap uh, I want to thank Excelsior Extracts, uh, their pain relief rub. Check them out on Instagram. Uh, I want to thank Sweet Leaf Nutrients. Uh, always remember the code DANKO15 gets you 15% off of everything on their website, uh, which includes the plant nutrients as well as grow tents and a lot of other stuff there. Uh, definitely want to thank Rocket Seeds, uh, our sponsor uh, for uh, seeds as well. Uh, check them out at rocketseeds.com and on their social media, um, vapor.com, you know, they have the code GBY15 for 15% off of vaporizers there as well. Um, I want to thank, uh, Kevin Hasey and Ivy Summer for being our guests and the show. I want to thank Dr. Mitch Earlywine, uh, DJ Jacques and Winstrong and my co-host and producer and loving friend, Mike G., so uh i yeah. just want to talk about ufos with somebody so yeah <laughs> absolutely well uh 56 was a great one it adds up to two ounces plus i hope uh and i hope you'll grow even more than that after listening uh but this was a fun one and uh i think it's over at this point so why don't we uh end this ninth inning and put this one in the books